We are in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We see three marks of an healthy church here. Verses 14 through 16 read, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried out, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, Rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And verse 16, From whom the whole body joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's holy word. Give you three marks of a healthy church here. A healthy church is doctrinally sound church. Verse 14. A healthy church is a spiritually mature church. Verse 15. And an earthly, uh, a healthy church is a mutually equipping church. Verse 16. Let's look at the first mark. A healthy church is a doctrinally sound church. Paul begins in verse 14 with the phrase, so that we may no longer be children. Paul recognizes the state of those who become believers. The readers in the church of Ephesians were, were children. And we all start off as children as we begin our Christian life. When you're born again, you're an infant. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we read that as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Uh, this means after you become a Christian, you are to grow into maturity. Conversion is not the end. It is just the beginning. So what should a Christian who is born again first do? Th they need to get equipped. They need to grow and they need to learn to get fit and qualified for the ministry. We are to grow and mature. And how does a believer become mature? Through the Word of God. This is why it is so important to, to get back to the Word of God. Scripture alone can give life and discernment produce sanctification in our lives. Scripture alone can help us discern between truth and error. Scripture alone can, can help produce sanctification in our lives. Scripture alone can give us the discernment to, to resist the passing fads and philosophies that exist in the world around us. I mean, this is why you and I need a healthy dose of God's Word proclaimed faithfully. It's only by the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word that will bring spiritual growth in each one of our lives and, and take us from being children, infants and children, to being adults. It is only the Word of God that can do that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we read, You've been born again by the imperishable word of God. Yes, this is why we need to proclaim this in order to bring salvation. And as you read James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Yes, it is of his own will. It is God by his sovereign will that brings about salvation in the lives of the people. But even the salvation that God brings, the means that he uses to bring salvation into the lives of people, is through the word of God. And this is why we read in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 10, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how they are to hear without preaching. 
Not preaching political philosophies, not preaching some passing fad, not preaching five ways to be a good man, but preaching God's word. Christ exalted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to be familiar with God's Word, not just being familiar with God's Word and in terms of knowing some stories in the Bible, but you need to be doctrinally grounded in God's Word. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, but it needs to happen sooner. And if you haven't grown in God's Word, you are still an infant, a child. And if you haven't grown in God's word, in the understanding of God's word, in the doctrinal truths of God's word, and you just you need to be fed milk constantly, then you're still a novice. And there are things that novices should not do. In fact, if you read Timothy and Titus, it'll tell you that. According to First Timothy and Titus, the first business of the young convert is to grow and to learn and to become fit and qualified for the service of the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Failure to remember this has led to the unscriptural practice of placing certain people in position of leadership immediately simply because of their prominence or their experience in their secular jobs. What is needed for spiritual leadership is not secular experience or professional experience, but spiritual understanding, spiritual apprehension, and a spiritual knowledge of the truth of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, what else is Paul concerned about? He states in verse 14, he says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. So in other words, he is giving characteristic of children here. Children are unstable. And that's why they are tossed to and fro. They are restless like the waves of the sea. I mean, if you've been around children, you know they lack self-control. That's why you need adults to be around children, to keep them. Children are creatures of their own impulses. They're moody. They don't have any control over their reactions and responses. I've taught middle school for a long time, and I know what that looks like. They react excessively and, and, and violently to stuff going around them. They're either fond of something at one point of time, and they can hate the same thing at another given point of time. They will love one toy at one point of time, and the next moment they don't want that toy anymore. And then the next moment they want that toy back. I mean, they lash out in their emotions. And they don't like to be patient in their learning. They want to advance quickly. They love entertainment. They love excitement. They are susceptible to showmanship. I mean, they despise discipline. They don't have the ability to respond correctly to the truth. We don't know what is right and what's wrong. And that's why children fall easy prey. They become easy prey to the imposter, to the false teacher who come along and tell them, and they believe anything and everything. This is why Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 29 and 30, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves. Now he's speaking this to the elders and he was concerned. And that's why he shared this as he was leaving the church of Ephesus. He said, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to do what? To draw away the disciples after them. So Paul is reminding them that you, you should be careful that you will have false teachers coming along, coming alongside. So you should no longer be children because children are tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea. In fact, here it says they are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. John McCorder he states that one of the greatest problems that faces churches in America is a lack of biblical knowledge. A poor understanding of the doctrine of God, the attributes of God, an inadequate understanding of the nature of Christ. He continues that churches these days are inflicted uh, by spiritual aids. 
And endemic to this problem is that the church does not have the immunity to face heresies. And he continues, he says, the church can die a thousand deaths with heretical diseases that creep into the church. I mean, think about this. A person could creep into the church, attend a Bible study, and, 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 and share a false doctrine, a heresy. And are we equipped to understand what is true and what is wrong, false? Do we, are we grounded in the doctrine of God's word to detect heresies that come along? Or are we kind of in a vanilla kind of Christianity? A superficial knowledge and understanding of God's word. And this is why Paul was very concerned in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14. He says, you would be cared about by every wind of doctrine. It's like the straw, the leaves of paper that, 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 that it flies everywhere. You have no control over it. It comes, the wind comes from one direction and then suddenly changes direction. I mean, look at a weather vane and you will know how, what I'm talking about. And, and Paul says a child is in a similar manner, turns around, is carried about by every wind, every kind of teaching in all directions. And so Paul is warning us of the dangers and he said, you ought to be careful. You're in an extremely dangerous position if you remain a child. Because we are surrounded by every wind of doctrine. And if we are not maturing, and if we are not growing in God's word, and if we remain as children, we would be characterized as those people who would be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The next phrase in verse 14 reads, By human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. See, here's the danger. The Lord warned us of the danger here. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So there are false prophets and they come to you in sheep's clothing. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 and 4 we read, I'm afraid. That as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now listen to this, my beloved. It says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. So there is the possibility there could be someone, a visitor, someone who could just creep in and preach and proclaim another gospel, another Jesus. Than the one we proclaim, if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. It's a warning that there are false teachers out there. There are different doctrines out there. The warning is very clear. We are surrounded by false teaching and heresies. And he does not want us to be deceived by those false teachers. And he says this, he says, they come by human cunning. The word cunning is from the Greek word kubos, from which we get our English word cube. And if you play board games, you know how that, that works, right? You take a cube and you toss it and you want a specific number to come. But there were people in the ancient times that would have the art and they would manipulate the throwing of the dice in a fashion deceiving the eye and, and the watcher would be sitting there and they would throw the dice in such a way and they would allow the right number to come up, the number that you wanted. That's what he says here, human cunning. The Apostle Paul continues in the next phrase, they do this by craftiness. Means cunning tricks which they employ. Sophisticated trickery, cleverness. Uh, they know what they're doing and they're full of cunning and craftiness. And beloved Christians in the church are clueless to these strategies. They're like sitting ducks ready to be captured by the enemy. 
Next phrase in verse 14, it says deceitful schemes. The real meaning of deceitful is, is, is error. It's from the Greek word planos, like a wandering planet. You're wandering away. The word after that, schemes, is from the Greek word methodias, from which we get our method or schemes. That means Paul is saying here that these people are very methodical or scheming in the way they lay out their plan. Ready to capture an animal. That's the sense you have here. So Paul is saying, as spiritual children, if you are just a child, you have the potential, the opportunity for false teachers to come here and by their human cunning and by their craftiness and deceitful schemes, capture people away from the truth. What are some errors or heresies that so exists? In the evangelical churches today, and I call it evangelical rather than liberal because you know what liberal churches look like. But these kind of errors creep into so-called evangelical churches. One of the true, one of the false heresy is that, uh, one of the heresy, not false heresy, one of the heresies is that they don't teach doctrine. They teach that doctrine divides. And they teach that no one can be dogmatic about anything. And no one is a custodian of the truth. And what is true for you may not be true for me. How can you so authoritatively stand there and teach that this is what the scripture says? You can't be dogmatic. I mean, this is seen in the emergent church movement. An outright denial of the clarity of scriptures. I mean, they say we are too humble to say that we know what the Bible means. This is prevalent in the postmodern philosophy that exists in our churches today. I mean, you can see this in community Bible studies. It's like each one is asked to pitch in the meaning of the scriptures. And everyone chimes in and states what they thought was the meaning of the scriptures. And then the facilitator comes along and just wraps up all the opinions. And that is it. Another error that we see in evangelical churches is the dichotomy created between the public life and private life. In other words, it doesn't matter how you live your private life. What you do in private is your personal choice. What they are more concerned is, are you willing to serve in the church, in the ministries of the church? I mean, you may no longer be fulfilling your marital responsibility towards your spouse or your family. I mean, as a matter of fact, you may be living in a living relationship with someone, not, not your wife or your husband, just like what we see in John chapter 4. But, but such men and women are allowed to involve in the ministries of the church. The understanding is... What you do in your private life is between you and God. You have the right to live your life the way you do, like to. It doesn't matter whether or not you have a dysfunctional family or a marriage. It doesn't matter if you're living in sexual immorality. It doesn't matter if you're a sodomite with plans for homosexual marriage. You can still be an active participa participating member of the church. As long as you're willing to serve. If you're willing to be an elder, you're willing to be a deacon, you can lead a men's, woman's Bible study, whatever it is, as long as you're willing. I mean, the typical advice given by pastors is that don't judge them. I mean, just love them, assist them on their journey, instead of confronting them about their sin and calling them to repentance. This is quote unquote, a pastor from Australia with a famous music church. It's, it's a form of existentialism. Just do what you like to do. Another error we see these days in the churches is pragmatism. John McCarter quotes this. He says, there was a pastor, a well-known preacher, who was disgusted with his long sermons. So he resolved that in the coming years, instead of listening to long sermons, he was going to do a better job in preparing short ones. And this is what he said. Quote, unquote, people I've discovered will forgive even poor theology as long as they get out before noon. 
I mean, this is the mentality in ministry today. And bad doctrine is tolerable. A long sermon most certainly is not tolerable. Preaching is being discarded or downplayed in favor of favor of new means, such as drama, dance, comedy, pop psychology, and other entertainment forms. I mean, if, if it can draw a crowd, that's what it matters. I mean, it's all about attendance, right, these days in the churches? I was at a church as an interim pastor, and they were hiring a new pastor. The new pastor was an artist, and he would be teaching the Bible by drawing an artistic rendering of the story he was going to preach. And beloved, the church hired that pastor. So instead of preaching, what he would do is he would draw. And people like that. That's cool. What you hear today is take surveys, interview parishioners, take a survey of the community, and let them ultimately decide what would work and what would not work. This is pragmatism. I mean, then there is the error experientialism, the charismatic moment. The moment in which all new experience, new revelation... I mean, churches boast of a worship service in which people are mesmerized. And then they love to see blessings fall from heaven like gold dust. Or maybe walk through a tunnel, a blessing tunnel that they pass through. Then there's sacramentalism. In which it's all about religious ceremonies. People are entranced by that. They love the chants, they love the smoke, they love the bells. I mean, it gives people a religious high. And we could go on and on with the new apostolic reformation in which they have brought back apostles and prophets and they say apostles and prophets receive new visions and they can bring God's kingdom here on earth. Well-known churches, especially in Redding, California, with another famous musical group setting up a huge conference in Orlando, Florida. You think about this. Religious leaders parading a form of Christianity, masquerading as representatives of the truth, when in fact they're nothing but religious hucksters. It's a form of paganized Christianity. And in verse 14, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wants us to grow from childhood to maturity so that you and I don't get sucked into these religious hucksters. And I know even as I say this that probably you're wondering, I mean, why are we concerned about all this? I think if we get the opportunity, we could go about naming people, but that would be a witch hunt here. I mean, we don't want to get to that point. I want to help you understand that if you and I are not grounded in God's word, we will not be able to discern when false heresies come. And it's so much out there. How would you know which teaching to say amen to? How do you know which preachers to listen to and not to listen to? How do you know how you, how you can stand firm against the changing winds of false doctrine? The preaching of God's word is the only means God uses, and one of the means, main means, God uses to bring sanctification in our lives. This is why, beloved, it is important to belong to a church where the Bible is being taught. Where the pastor-teacher labors in the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching God's word. Now, there are many churches where the pastor would take a verse from the Bible, a couple of verses from the Bible, and then go off on a tangent. You need to sit under someone who takes the word of God, reads God's word, and explains God's word in the realm of its doctrines, and exhorts you to obey God's word. That's expository preaching. 
And, and when you do that, and when you take the Bible seriously, you will no longer be children, but you will grow into spiritual maturity. And as you grow into spiritual maturity, you will be able to understand the doctrines out there. And you will not be tossed to and fro by the scheming of cunning false teachers. So, mark of a healthy church is that they are doctrinally pure and grounded. Let's go to the second heading. A healthy church is a spiritually mature church. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, the word Paul used here for, for speaking is the Greek word meaning professing the truth in love. It could be translated having or holding the truth in love. It includes speaking it, discussing it, teaching it. Now, I want to camp here and address something. This verse here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love, along with John chapter 17, about being uh, as one, united as one, and Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge another person, is the most misinterpreted verse or verses in the evangelical churches today. Now, we don't have time to get into each one of that and understand the meaning of it, but we will do, we will look at Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. What does it mean when Paul says we must speak the truth in love? Now, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. When Paul sp says speak the truth in love, it does not mean to be nice and loving. Because that's how the text is interpreted today. I mean, they also say that what prevents church growth and revival is a lack of unity. And we must put fellowship and unity in the supreme position. And to that end, we must be willing to tolerate anything and everything in the church. As long as we are nice and loving. I mean, show a friendly spirit, do good works. And what we believe or don't believe is inconsequential. Just be like Christ. I think they got that wrong. You may not believe in atonement. You may not believe in the virgin birth. You may not believe in the resurrection. But as long as you have an open mind and is tolerant of other opinions, is kind and friendly and gracious, that's what, what makes one a Christian. This means you criticize no error, you praise everything, because after all, everyone has some amount of truth in it after all. This is what love is, and this is what love has been reduced to in our culture today. Let us see what Paul's, Paul means in Ephesians 4.15. Is this what Paul meant by speaking the truth in love? It is found, the clue to this is found in the conjunction for, or rather, in verse 15. The conjunction contrasts what was said in verse 14 to what is going to be said in verse 15. In verse 14 it said, We are not to be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but the opposite of that is that we are to hold on to a standard of truth. Otherwise, how would we be able to discern the trickery of the false teachers and the deceitful scheming of Satan? How would we know if someone is deceiving, it, deceiving us if we do not have a yardstick of truth to measure it? And we need to have a standard of judgment. We need to have a definitive truth. I mean, objective truth, propositional truth. And the only way we can have objective propositional truth is the authority of God's word. That means you need to understand that when God's word says something, it is so. You and I don't have the liberty to draw a meaning of what it says. It says what it says. And without the absolute authority of the Bible, we cannot, and you cannot, speak the truth. Speaking the truth 
It's illustrated perfectly in a passage. Would you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 16. Galatians chapter 4, verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So here is Paul, and he is, he is testifying, he is talking about uh, an important heresy, and he's bringing it out to the Galatians, and he's telling the Galatians, I've talked to you the truth, I've told you the truth. Have I become your enemy? And if you read further in verse 19... He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, I love you so much. I'm in anguish of childbirth. I mean, he's comparing it to the pain that a mother goes through as she bears, as she, as she delivers, as she gives birth to a child. He says, I'm in the same anguish for you. That is my love for you. So he says, I love you as a mother loves the children. I value your soul so highly that I have to speak the truth to you. Beloved, love is not being sentimental and weak. Love is strong. Love is true. Love is pure. To love a person means you desire the best for that person. And so love sometimes hurts. I mean, occasionally we have to be strong as we speak the truth. There's something called tough love, right? As one preacher said, tough love is loving someone enough to do something that is not very pleasant for you or for them. Why? Out of genuine concern for the well-being of the other person. This is why children never like parents. Because they discipline. They love their uncles. Why? Because they visit them once in a while and they shower them with lots of gifts and all love, right? Never discipline because they leave. They don't like their parents. Isn't that what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6? Whomever the Lord loves, what does he do? He disciplines. He chastens. This means if we truly love our fellow Christians, we may have to speak the truth, and sometimes speaking the truth very sternly to show them the way of error with all the strength we have. If I'm standing by the roadside and I see someone crossing the street, and there is a truck coming at this person, I'm not going to stand there and say, Hey, I love you. Move away. Please move away. I will do everything it takes, scream, yell, maybe even jump and pull him out of the street. Why? That's what true love is. But now... I want to look at this again. Look at Ephesians 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love. Paul states here, as we speak the truth, we must speak it with the love of Christ. Speaking the truth of the gospel is to love others because it is the only by believing in the gospel that you can have eternal life. It's only by believing in the gospel can you have a gospel connection. But as we speak the truth, as we speak the truth, we must be patient. We must be kind. We must be sensitive in the way we talk to others. Our concern as we speak the truth should never be to win an argument or to show how right we are. That's where everything goes wrong. We must never speak the truth in order to prove that we are right and everyone else is wrong. Would you please turn with me to Colossians? Colossians chapter 4. Verse 6. 
Let your speech always be what? Gracious. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. It means we are to be gracious. We are to think as we speak. It's not about us being right and them being wrong. It's about the glory of God as you speak the truth. It's about Christ being exalted as you speak the truth. It is about Christ coming in and through your demeanor as you speak the truth. It is Christ coming in through your tone as you speak the truth. It is Christ coming in through your voice as you speak the truth. It's Christ coming in through your intonation as you speak the truth. It's Christ overall as you speak the truth. I mean, if we have a self-righteous attitude, we will not see anything wrong with ourselves. But we'll always magnify the shortfall of others. This is why even as we bring truth to others, we need to first take the beam out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's eye. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, right? We need to recognize our own fallibility. Beloved, oftentimes I've seen that, that teaching the truth is far more productive. As I teach the truth, I, I remind myself that, that the other person, that so-and-so is mature in the faith and, and that they have not been taught the true word of God and I give the other person the benefit of doubt and I remind myself the other person is a babe in Christ and I, and I began, begin to have a compassion for the other person. It causes me to, to teach God's word in love. And even then I fail at it sometimes. And we need to remind ourselves what Jesus did. Jesus taught the truth. And in fact, as he taught the truth, he said he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says, what does the Bible say? He had compassion on them. That is what speaking the truth in love means. And we should be patient with people. Raising two boys, I've learned this lesson late in life, but early on, I, I used to be quick. As soon as they opened their mouth and said something, I wanted to offer the correction without even willing to listen to what they had to say. And then I learned that I need to sit and listen and understand them before even offering correction. But, you know, I'm impatient as a father. And we do the same when it comes to people in the body of Christ. But at the same time, folks, love is not sentimental and weak. Love does not smile at everything and overlook error. Love is strong. Love is true. Love is pure. As someone said, truth without love can be harsh, but love without truth becomes flabby. Truth may hurt, but love helps ease the pain. So having seen the second heading, let us move on. And by the way, verse 15 continues to say, When you do this, you are helping them grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That means you are helping this person or the body become like Christ. Christ has a preeminence in our lives. Christ controls every part of our body. Just like the head controls every part of our body, Christ, being the head of the church, controls every part of the body. And you are helping this person grow up in every way into Him who is Christ. 
That means your submission to Christ. You are under the headship of Christ. Our thought life, our emotional life, our body, our clothing, our resources, our time, our money, our possessions. You laid down at the feet of the cross and you laid down at the feet of the cross and you esteem Christ above all. You're able to say like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. That was the second heading right there. And as we now come into the third heading, verse 16. Are you growing? Are you maturing? And that is a healthy church. Is a mutually equipping church. As you're growing and maturing. Verse 16. Let me read verse 16 for you. And from whom the whole body. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Paul begins verse 16 with the phrase from whom? Who is that referred to? Christ. Christ is the head from whom the entire body derives its strength. As you moment by moment you depend upon Christ. It is from Christ that you get your growth. It is from Christ you get your nourishment. It is in Christ you have your abiding. Paul continues in verse 16. From whom the whole body, the entire body, the body of Christ. Look at the next phrase. Joined and held together. They are synonyms. They are both participles. They are both present tense. That means it is continual in nature. They are both passive. That means somebody else outside of you is doing the joining and the holding together. You know who that person is going to be, right? It's Christ. Let's look at those words. It says joined and held together. The word joined together or fitted together is literally used to the parts of the body or stones of a building. In ancient times, as they wanted to build a building, they would go into the quarry and they would take stones out and they would uh, cut the stones and they would try to figure out how it can be placed right next to each other. And they would cut it off and they would take off the rough corners precisely so that the stones can snugly, strongly and beautifully fit with each other. Nothing is out of place. There was no mortar, no cement. And so you had to take the, the, the person had to take the stone and place it to one another and then chip off those edges and then place it and see if it fits together tightly enough. That's what it means. Joined together. And Christ is the architect. God is the architect. He fits us as he desires. It's like the carpenter doing the, the, the work in the building. The framework of the house. God does that as he fits us together. So marvelous as we as people come to this church and we become members of the body of Christ. We are all so uniquely different. But God so fashions us and fits us together that we become, even though diverse as a body, united as one body. And sometimes we all have to learn the hard lessons. Even as we are in the body life. Who said the body life is going to be easy? There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be struggles. And as God does the work of fashioning us and shaping us to be more and more like Him. He is the architect. And He constantly does does that. He doesn't finish. He's not finished with you. Every day is shaping you and fashioning you and chipping off the rough edges and making you fit to people in your life. You wonder why God brings certain people into your life? To sanctify you. That's what he does. He joins together. The next word is the word there in verse 16. Held together. Meaning to bring together to form a unity. It means to knit together. And how does he hold us together? He goes on there to say, By every joint with which it is equipped. Now, some Bible says ligaments and parts, but it's coming together, intimately joined together. It means every one of us as members of the body is being equipped by being connected to one another. Each member of the body, by virtue of being a believer, has been endowed with a spiritual gift. We looked at it last week. 
And as each one of us, with the spiritual gifts we have, continue to do our work in the body of Christ, we are all being held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And even the equipping is done by God. God is generously supplying or abundantly supplying or providing the nourishment or the strength. And look at what it says, continues says in verse 16, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow. That means when each part is supporting and lovingly maintaining the other part. How do we do that? Each one of us has been given a gift according to the manifold grace of God. If you look at the parts of the body, the hide, the hand, the head, the feet, the nose, the tongue are all members of the body. They're not all of equal importance, but each one is a function. And every part has been given a full and abundant supply of life. That's what it says. You have been equipped to do it. Every part has been given an abundant supply of life and energy to enable to carry out its particular function in a particular manner. And the same way, as members of the body of Christ, we all have been given an abundant supply of what we need to carry out our particular function in the body of Christ. So no one can say, well, I'm not required in this body. And what happens if one individual part of a member decides not to do its part? The whole body suffers. Now, if you're a believer, we established this in the past weeks, if you're a believer, you have been given a spiritual gift. And if you've been given a spiritual gift, as diverse as it is, by the manifold grace of God, you are required to use it. For what? So that each part is working properly. The body is paralyzed when you don't do your work. The body is not growing if you don't do your part. And not only that, if you don't allow another member to do the gift that they have or use the gift that they have for the building of the body, then you are becoming an entrance in their life and in the body life of the church. You're interfering with the plan of God. The body loses something when you don't function. And you prevent someone from functioning. So what's the goal of all this? Look at me in verse 16, please. The goal of all this is that it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The goal of all this is increased growth of the body. Love is the final perfection. So as you look at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16 was one section. And look at how Paul so articulates the, the love aspect in verse 2. Ephesians 4, 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love. And now look at verse 16 makes the body grow so that each builds up itself in love. So as we put all of these things together, the only way we can be walking in unity is by walking in love. And walking in love means you are coming alongside in the body to do your part so that the body can grow and build itself up in love. That means you're equipping one another. That's the third heading. As members of the body of Christ, you are constantly equipping one another to maturity. Beloved, we all, when we get saved, needs to belong to the visible church. There are no invisible Christians. And the reason you belong to the visible church is so that you become a tangible expression of the glory of Christ.
The only way the world can know who Christians are is to look at the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is an organic unity, a vital part. It's just like your body. Think about your human body. I will not be able to function effectively if I lose one of the parts of my body. And we need to understand the seriousness of that. When you become part and parcel of the body of Christ, and I need to have a high view of the church. This is why we so emphasize membership in this church, because membership allows you to see that you are identifying yourselves with a local body. And when you identify yourself with the local body, then you become accountable to the local body. And as you become accountable to the local body, you understand that's the body where you're going to administer the gifts that God's given you. Do you believe that God's gifted you if you're a believer? We looked at the gift of service last week, didn't we? The ministering gifts. You all have one or two or three, whatever God's put into your life. You don't know what they are? Pray. Look into the Word of God. Come alongside other Christians and ask them, what did you see in my life? What am I gifted at? We're not talking about talents or skills. Everyone has got talents and skills. We're talking about spiritual gifts. And when you identify your spiritual gifts, use it to the body for the benefit of the body. Three headings that we looked at. A church that is doctrinally sound. True. A, do, a church that is spiritually mature. And a church that is mutually equipping for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give us, Lord, to immerse ourselves in this passage. And help us, Lord, to be, continuing, to be, con, to be continual stewards of the word of God. That we would keep it in our mind, meditate upon it, relish on it. And may you take center stage in our life through the word of God. Father, help us, Lord, to honor Christ, lift Christ, to, to lean on Christ, to stand in the word of God. So that we would be able to exalt Christ as a king of kings. Thank you again for this day. You be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.